You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As we think about life and all that's changing around us and the rate at which technology and inventions and different things are taking place, it was not that long ago that there were things that were seemingly new to us then are now so outdated that even as I read them to you by name, you might not even know what I'm talking about. Printed atlases, PDAs, email accounts, that you paid for, dial-up internet, taking film to get developed, movie rental stores, advertisements in the classifieds of the newspaper, long-distance phone charges, public pay phones, VCRs, phone books, backing up your data on CDs. Certainly, a lot of the younger people are here like, what are you talking about exactly? Others of you are like, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was a list down memory lane. Others of you are like, Eric, you're so young. I remember what it was like before we had color television. Change is hard. It feels destabilizing. While we know it is inevitable, it still comes at a surprising time and surprising ways. For as much as we have told ourselves we'd be ready for change in general, we're often show that we're not ready based on a reaction when it comes. Some people often have got things settled and they want things to stay the same. And when they do not, they feel unsure and uncomfortable. Well, this morning... And our little parenthetical block of Sundays, last Sunday, celebrating the arrival of Christ, and this Sunday, the ministry of Christ and his return for us. And this Sunday, we, we continue this parenthetical break from Joshua, where we return in the coming weeks ahead. And now look actually at something that Jesus wants to teach us. The change that we see here is not the launch of the Kindle, that's come and gone. The introduction of the iPhone, that's come and gone. In John 13, as we're going to see leading into John 14, Jesus announces a change to his disciples. He is leaving. He is leaving. They have gotten used to Jesus being with them every single hour of every single day, of every single week, of every single month. And of the last years they've been together, and Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave. Hold on now. Hold on, Jesus. I want to look at a text this morning in John 13 and John 14 that I think will be helpful to us because of a conversation dated 2,000 years ago has every point of relevance for us still today. As we think about Christmas, Christmas is essentially a time of looking back 
at the arrival of Christ and the significance of the coming of Christ and his first coming, but now we sort of straddle, as even Pastor Chris said last week, the already not yet, the having already come and yet not yet returning. How do we as Christians look forward? You can see for the title of our message today, Fear, Faith, and Our Future. Here's sort of the main lesson that we're going to learn and come in different ways at it. Faith in Christ is the anchor that holds us in an uncertain future. Faith in Christ is the anchor that holds us in an uncertain future. Now, if you would, follow along with me in John 13. Let's start in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. As we sort of look back at this text, let me sort of slow it down and show you the progression. Because there's a progression I want you to observe that I think will minister to every one of us today as we think about this. Really five progressive steps of the disciples facing their future confidently. The first one, Jesus' departure. Now, 
John 14 is an ongoing part of an earlier conversation, and to be quite honest, John 13 verse 36 is a continuation of a conversation. If you jump earlier to verse 31 of John 13, it says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. And this is where he says, for the first time in this context, he says here, verse 33, Little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me, Just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He gives a new commandment in verse 34 about them loving one another, just as I have loved you. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. And then he picks back up on this where Jesus says again in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow afterwards. Now, the reason I say Jesus' departure is because Jesus is basically telling him of a change to take place, a time where seemingly independence for the disciples would be fully realized. You have to realize how significant this is. I mean, this is unbelievably unsettling for them. Jesus is announcing his departure. They cannot imagine life without Jesus. Honestly, think about the things in your life that you are so accustomed to having. I admit, technologically speaking, I am so accustomed to having access to the internet through Wi-Fi or through data on my phone that I sometimes, and I'm saying this to my shame, would rather have Wi-Fi than water. How am I going to connect with the rest of the world? I can go a couple days without water. We have soda and stuff like that. I'll put on deodorant, but no Wi-Fi? I say this at my own sort of shame as to how something as small as being dependent upon technology can be so seemingly a point of crux for us. There are relationships that we have in life. It's often disjointing and disorienting for many parents who have done so much work to give birth to these children, to raise these children, to provide for these children, and then these children do what they knew was always going to be happening, leave. And like, where are they going? Like, where they were always going to go. I don't like that. Friends, those are small in comparison to what it would mean for Jesus to say to his disciples, I'm going to leave, and you can't follow, at least not now. Hold on. Do you understand? This is a game changer for us. Even a short intermittent time earlier in Jesus' ministry when he is away in prayer doing other works with a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, a man brings his son to Jesus who is AWOL. And so he gets Jesus' JV squad, the disciples who are remaining, saying, hey, can you please cast this demon out of my son? They could not do it. Jesus shows up. They have a conversation. It's a profound conversation. Jesus cast the demon out of his son. The father leaves with now his son who is free from that demon. Later on, the disciples ask him, hey, uh, what was the secret? Why could we not? We literally like, tried to do everything you did. Like We said what you said. We did what you did. And Jesus says to him, you cannot do this apart from prayer. And they're like, oh, prayer. Why do we think of prayer? 
Like the smallest seemingly of tasks, they needed Jesus to be with them. And now Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave and you cannot follow now. This is going to be disorienting not only for the disciples, even for the crowd. Jesus was not just a get-out-of-jail card by way of teaching. He was a get-out-of-poverty card. He fed thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of people miraculously. He healed people miraculously. He makes references in John 14 that even his works should confirm his deity. Where are those people going to go to get food? Where are people going to go to be healed if he leaves? The people who are going to be happy about his departure are his enemies, namely the Pharisees. They've been plotting for this the whole time. Dare I even say praying to what God we would not imagine, but that this would actually come to pass. Jesus would later say he's laying down his life. No one's taking it from him. What's so remarkable is to see the significance here. Jesus is going to depart. There's a progression here. It starts with what appears to be the absence of God. Takes us to the second progression, their denial. I mean, kind of right on cue, nope, I refuse to accept it. I refuse to accept it. Look at Peter's reaction in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answers him. And then Peter says, nah, not having it. Why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. I mean, you've got to love Peter. If nothing else, he's entertaining. I mean, he is definitely like, you know, speak before he thinks. Like a lot of us, myself included. He's just impulsive. He's just instinctive. He just lets it fly. He's like, nope. Wherever you go, I go. Nothing's going to happen to you. It'll be literally over my dead body. Something's going to happen to you. And then he makes his resolution as he says there, I will lay down my life for you. This is that time, friends, of the year, New Year's Eve. What do we do? We make resolutions. This next year is going to be a different year. You got them? Some of you are like, anti-resolution. You're like, yeah, I'm going to stick it to the resolution man. I'll make more resolutions in June. I don't care. The rest of us, oh, I'm all on board. I like the year kind of as a marker. In the past as a family, sometimes we'd say things like, hey, this year, no soda. That's how radical we get in the Bancroft household. So like, I never drank soda for like 10 years. Like, that's VIP right there. Some of you might be like, hey, I want to I'm going to start reading my Bible regularly, consistently. I'm going to get on a Bible reading plan. That's awesome. Go for it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make it a point to get up earlier on a Sunday morning on January 7th and get to church on time. Sorry, as I start preaching there, I apologize. <laughs> Resolutions, at least making them, is easy. Keeping them becomes a whole other level. I mean, there's a whole fitness industry built around the premise that you're not going to keep your word because they can't afford to fit all of you in their spaces in June. They're prepared for it to go a little bit insane in January and February, but they're kind of hoping by March it's going to fade. The money will keep coming because you're on an annual contract. That monthly bill is going to keep coming. But they just don't want you to keep coming. Peter, he makes a resolution. I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus says, not only will you not do that, you'll actually deny me. It's like counter-resolution. You'll deny me not once, not twice, three times. So there's a sense of denial here that I don't want to accept what God is doing. In fact, I want to counter it with my own proposal. Peter could not conceive of any situation that would make Jesus' words necessary. Jesus didn't need to go away. I'll be his wingman. And yet, they're having a hard time. And by the way, though Peter is the first one to speak here, as we'll see in a few minutes, he's not the last one to speak. So it goes from Jesus' departure to their denial to now their despair. Their despair. And it's, that's the context. That's the continuing of this conversation, John 14, which, again, sometimes the chapter verse breaks kind of break up these conversations in a way that maybe doesn't connect them as well for us. So let's connect it. It's in that context when Jesus has just said to Peter and the disciples that he's about to leave, and Peter's like, no, you're not. And Jesus is like, yes, I am. It says in verse 1, Jesus speaking here, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The disciples, as it begins to unpack here, increasingly show their despair. Now, to be clear, this isn't like breaking news. This isn't the first time Jesus has been talking about this reality. He came for a mission, for a purpose. It was for a period of time. He said earlier in John 7, John 8, John 12, John 13, he was going away. He said in John 12 that he was going to die. He even said in John 13 that one of them, that one of the 12 was actually going to be a traitor to him. Tell me, that doesn't make you turn around and look suspiciously at your friends. He said that Peter would disown him three times. He said that Satan was at work against all of them and that the disciples would fall away. The cumulative weight of these revelations would have greatly discouraged them, caused them despair, if not depressed them. And yet, Jesus is the one who's about to go through all of the suffering, all of the denial, all of the rejection. And yet, here he is, not looking for encouragement and companionship. Here he is in his final days, offering that for his disciples, because he knew that they were in despair. It's remarkable what he says, let not your hearts be troubled. The reality of circumstances is that they bring out in us what's already kind of off times lying dormant in us. The problem is not actually the circumstances, though those are often undesired. Loss of a job, loss of a friend, an unplanned motor, uh, not motorcycle, that'd be even worse, but automobile accident. It's what happens when these things take place. It brings out in us a reaction. It shows how our heart is troubled. The fear, the anxiety, the overwhelming sense of uncertainty. 
I mean, let me just ask you, even as you reflect back in 2023 and even imagine what's coming ahead in 2024 about difficult or uncertain times. Is your heart troubled? Do you have questions that have not been removed with answers? Christ knows this. He addresses this. It's intriguing to consider how short-sighted the disciples and you and I often are at only seeing what's right in front of us. Even though we have so much history behind us to inform us to think otherwise, we still get nearsighted. We only can see what's in front of us. And we cannot recognize the different ways by which God uses experiences in our past that would seem doomed for failure, and yet they have attributed to and been a means of success. And God has done this, not uniquely to just Christians. Some of you who are here who are non-Christians, you can even, I think, be honest historically with how your life has gone in ways you did not plan or expect. Jobs that perhaps you're in, like, dude, I don't know, I got that job. A relationship, housing situation, perhaps a pregnancy that you did not see coming, Lord, how the Lord has moved in different ways. I'm reminded of sort of these remarkable stories of people's seemingly failure in the past and how it led to success. And everybody, you know that Michael Jordan is sort of the argued best basketball player versus, you know, James or LeBron James, which you can see by the fact that I got the names ordered out of order, what a basketball guy I am. This debate about who's the great. You know that Michael Jordan did not make his high school basketball team at first? <laughs> like, oh, maybe they're all of us are NBA stars in the making. We just forgot to keep going back. A name I referenced last week to you, J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter series, submitted her book to 12 different publishers, all of which said, no, thank you, until one of the publishers' kid got a copy of the book and said, Dad, you've got to publish this, and it rests as history. It's interesting how despairing they can be so quickly. And Jesus is offering comfort. Look at what he says in verse three. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. What's interesting is that Jesus is not promising circumstantial peace their hearts being troubled is to point to not an immediate future, but an eternal one. He's trying to lift their head up to not say tomorrow will be better. 2024 has promised for you. He's saying life after the one that you live now, the one that's to come, is where I'm gonna go to prepare a place for you. He wants to address their despair with hope Hope not only in his future return and therefore their reunion, but in his provision of what is going to be made available for them. Which that then takes us forth to Jesus' directions. And this is important, everybody in here listen to these directions. Because he wants to make sure no one is unclear. There's basically this conversation he says here with two interruptions. 
Where I'm going, you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And you have basically two interruptions. You have Thomas, verse 5, and you have Philip here in verse 7. Look at what he's saying here. Excuse me, verse 8. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Philip, verse 8, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You can almost sort of hear the anxious, filled questions. I think it's interesting is basically Jesus is having a conversation and they're interrupting. Like, could, could, Jesus is like, could you just let me finish? If you'll just let me finish, I think what I have to say, you'll want to hear. This is often sometimes what it's like in conversation with people. You're in the middle of saying something and they get so kind of worked up about what you've just covered that they can't wait to hear the next part. They have questions like, okay, just, if you will just give me a second, I will get to that. And you can see what's happening here in the, crush, in the conversation. Thomas really wants a spiritual GPS. He says to him, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Philip, he wants a spiritual reference. He's basically like, hey, thank you, Jesus. Uh, could you show us the Father? That's enough. Like, just before you leave, sorry to hear that, could we, could we get access to the Father? Could you, could you give a good word for us? Could you make a letter of recommendation for us? Could you put in a, a good word that, that we have access to him? If you're absent, at least let the Father know that we're still here. After all, you taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. But we want to make sure that we still have that kind of access, that relationship. What you can see with both of these is they want something more than what Jesus is offering them for comfort. Jesus has just got finished saying, I will go and prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will take you to myself, and then you'll go be with me also. You would think people would be like, oh, okay, okay. Whew. Like my, my blood pressure has dropped. My pulse has calmed down. I'm good. Not Thomas, not Philip. Yep, thank you for that whole future pie in the sky talk, Jesus. We need, we've got concerns right now. I've got questions right now. And what you see here is the sense that they're looking for something from Jesus by assurance, by offer, that he's not necessarily offering them. But actually, it is what he's offering them. They're just refusing to see it. And this is what I want to make sure everybody in this room sees it this morning. And Thomas is saying, we want to know the way. And what did Jesus say? Arguably one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way. Not a way, the way, the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, there's no small print here, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, good news, bad news. This is significant because of what's being said here. He's talking about the reality. He gives clarity who can be reunited with Christ and have comfort in their future. Those who have believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This will make you be clear 
in the vast minority of all people living on the planet today in the sense of truly believing that God will accept you, that's amazing, but not because of anything you have done or you pledge to do, but only because of what Christ has done, that he is the son of God, lived perfectly like none of us ever have, but lived as a human, as the God man, 100% God, 100% man, and then fulfilling all of God's righteous demands as the holy creator, died then as a substitute on the cross, what's about to come later in the text, as a substitute for whoever would believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins, that he would be treated the way they deserve to be treated, receiving God's wrath upon himself, not upon them, and then powerfully, convincingly, undeniably, historically, reliably rose again from the grave three days later and appeared to witnesses more than are sitting in this room. And then after 40 days, ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father, where even right now, as I speak to you, he is at and promises to return. Not just to judge the world according to his righteousness, but promises to return for everyone who believes he is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, do you believe that? Then take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. He has gone to prepare a place for you and for you and for you. And for anybody who would believe in Christ alone because of his grace alone, through faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You think, man, that, that, that'll preach. Philip's like, I got a question. <laughs> you see the patience of Christ here? He just got finished dropping that like mic drop moment of truth on him. Philip's like, I got a question. Show us the Father. He, Jesus just got finished saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except to me. Philip's like, oh, speaking of Father, can you show us the Father? Oh, you just have to imagine Jesus with his divine patience saying to Philip, he... He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, this is a profound reality to be combined what will happen later in verses 15 and the following of John 14. We won't get to it, but you can read it in the extra credit time if you want. It's the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. Deuteronomy chapter six, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet in Genesis chapter one, verse 29, let us make man in our image the profound reality that God is three persons in one Godhead revealed in his word, as Jesus even speaks about here, equal in essence, distinct and harmonious relationship to one another. Jesus is like, Philip, to get me is to get God. I and the Father are one. This isn't a substitute deity. This isn't JV, Trinity. This is equal essence. You can't but the wonder and sort of your sanctified imagination, Peter, James, and John who were there when Jesus was transfigured, when he appeared for a short time in his glory. If they didn't want to enter, I'm going, oh, trust me, we've seen it. We've seen it. It was mind-blowing. 
Peter's like, we try to get some rocks and like build a temple right there. And he said, no, no, don't do that. How much has Jesus shown him, and yet he still does not believe the significance of this? Jesus gives these directions. And now, finally, their destination. Their destination. And this is sort of layered throughout. You see it in verse 2. You see it in verse 3, verses 12 through 14. Let's just jump into verses 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and the greater works that these, than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Just for clarification here, when Jesus says greater works than these shall he do, shall you do, Jesus is not meaning greater works in display or power like Raise some from the dead, you can raise even more. You healed some people, you can heal even more. He's talking about the extent of the reach. These disciples and their disciples and their disciples, as we even sit here today to be an illustration of this, would become witnesses to all the world through the Holy Spirit. God would use them to bring many to salvation, even more than who were brought to salvation the day of Christ. Is that mind-blowing or what? It's unbelievable to see. Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And just that sense of encouragement, what's happening here repeatedly, it's a point of comfort for them. You know the way to where I am going. Let me briefly just wrap this up by giving you some comforting lessons that we can see from this. First of all, Ironic as this lesson might be, the best of Christians still sin. The best of Christians still sin. When you look at Peter and you take a look at Philip and Andrew, you're like, whoo, it's not trending well. I think what's encouraging to see, ironically, is that we can see here as we look at Peter's story at the end of chapter 13, people respond to the story differently. Some are discouraged, others are encouraged. It's never a good thing to see one falter or struggle. It's a good thing to watch the response that God has to them when they come to him. Friend, the challenge is not going to be, will you struggle to profess to be a follower of Christ, to keep that profession? The question will be, what do you do when you recognize you've struggled? Peter goes back to the Lord, where else can you go? Where do you go, Christian? Some of you as Christians still struggle with what is very true for those of you who are not Christians, which is shame and guilt. Almost some of the reoccurring temptations for people is to sort of live in the aftermath of decisions and actions and words and broken realities that they live in light of. If there's anybody who could write a book on that would be Peter. It's worth noting that Peter didn't come back after the resurrection and never falter again. Like, oh man, that three-time thing, that's embarrassing, but I never faltered again. We know from our time in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's like, Peter, you want me to tell him or should I tell him? All right, I'll tell him. Peter was a hypocrite. Like, man, Really? Why is this worth noting? Because I think sometimes there can be this fallacy that everybody in Christian community, once you've been a Christian long enough, you should pretty much be impressively sinless. 
maybe with a few moments of impatience or unkindness. Oh, some of us still struggle greatly and how we can take comfort what Jesus says in John 14 verse 1 after he says this to Peter. The rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And then he says, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe also in God, believe also in me. Friends, take those failures to the Lord by faith that he will hear you and receive you as a prodigal son who returns home to a father who embraces him. Secondly, God's imperceptible presence in our life does not mean his lack of care for us. God's imperceptible presence in our life does not mean his lack of care for us. The reality is that a lot of times the disciples did not feel like when Jesus was with them, let alone was without them, that he cared about them. You remember when he's in the boat? For those of you who know the Bible, it's in the situation where they're in the storm, and these are like part fishermen, meaning some of them are fishermen by trade, and you think they don't get scared. Trust me, this storm was so crazy, they thought they're going to drown. They're scared to death. And Jesus is like taking a sweet Sunday afternoon nap waking them up and saying, do you not even care about us? That's when he is present with them. They will sometimes think he didn't even care about them. Then when he's going to leave them, they don't think he doesn't care. Sometimes it's not what God is doing. Sometimes it's the fact that you don't think God's doing anything at all. You feel like heaven does not hear you when you pray. Jesus is working. He said it here, verse 3. He's preparing a place for you. He will come again. He will take you to himself. You will be with him. God hears you. God sees you. God cares about you. And he definitely does love you. Third, forgiveness is possible through faith. Forgiveness is possible through faith. That's really what the kind of a point of application here for us to consider is the reality that Jesus continues to extend, extend. He has a sort of an inclusive and exclusive reality. This no one comes to the Father except through me, verse 6. The sort of verse 12, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, this verse 13, whatever you, whatsoever you ask in my name... He has a sort of inclusive, exclusive. Friends, again, this is good news, bad news. Good news is anybody here, no matter what you've come from, no matter what you've done, can be accepted by Christ. Forgiveness is possible through faith. Not faith that you'll promise to make a New Year's resolution that you're going to barter with God. God, if you forgive me today, I promise I'll behave tomorrow. Friends, that will be a failed resolution sooner or later. And if your confidence is in your ability to keep your resolutions with God, we're all in trouble. But if your confidence is in God's ability to keep his resolutions, we're fine. We're fine. We are. We're good to go. That's exactly what Jesus is making. He's making the resolution. He is making the promise. Fourth lesson, our future is guaranteed by Christ. He says this, I prepare a place for you. The, the reception you can see here, the sweetness of this. You can imagine some of you had family come back for Christmas time. Some of you were that family coming back for Christmas time. 
And it was awesome, right? I mean, you kind of, maybe you were college students, you were away for college, or maybe you had family who was gone and they kind of came to visit you, whatever it might be. And there's a sense of anticipation, the, the places you might eat at, the meals you might prepare, the activities you might enjoy together. Listen, our sons are old enough. For those of you who do not know, my wife and I have three sons, a 23-year-old who's married, lives in Colorado Springs, a 21-year-old who's a firefighter in the Air Force in New Mexico, and a 20, almost 21-year-old who's in college who thankfully still comes home. Man, we love it when our son comes home. And we love it when other sons come to visit with our favorite daughter-in-law, but they don't come as often. But man, when this son comes home, when Jeremiah comes home, we, we are like anticipating it. And we begin to think about activities we want to do and food we want to eat. And it's exciting. Last night we had ribs. It was awesome. Glory to God. Dominion mandate. We enjoyed ribs. these sense of anticipations. People will plan for high school reunions years in advance, the more higher the number. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I've got to imagine it's like a fifth year high school reunion. It's like, hey, there's like three of us. We meet at the Panera Bread at 6 a.m. We get a coffee and a bagel, talk about how much our body aches. Jesus is saying here, there's going to be a reunion to come, and it's guaranteed by him, preparing a place for you. One of the things I really enjoyed these last couple of weeks is the chance to sit with Tony and Ileana Formant and Mike and Cindy Plotkin, four members of our church. Ileana went up month or so ago to minister to her sister who had a knee surgery and wanted to help her only to find out that she needed to have an emergency heart surgery within some other complications that came and really got very risky very quickly and was stuck up in Jacksonville for almost a month. Mike Plotkin this past week had to have another surgery. I say another because he's had a fair amount of surgeries already. He feels like he's on a first name basis with all the staff at Mount Sinai had cancer surgeries, had other issues. This past week, he had to have a surgery to remove a tumor. It's non-cancerous, but a tumor on his lung, but it's close to the heart. And the concern about how that procedure would go, it went well, for those of you who didn't get the update. One of the things that I appreciated being with these saints was just to watch their settled sense of like, it's okay. It's okay. I, yes, pray for the nurses. I pray for the doctors. Yes, I would love to see my grandkids or my great-grandkids. I would love to sing with the saints of God one more time, but it's okay if the Lord has me to come home because I'll get to enjoy a reunion sooner than I otherwise would if he had me to stay here longer on this planet. The joke was, I'm the pastor, supposed to show up and minister. And I felt ministered too. The perspective on what really matters. I mean, you, you realize the presents that you got this year for Christmas. If I ask you to tell me what presents you got last year for Christmas, you probably don't remember most of those. And you won't remember probably most of the presents you got today a year from now. And I'm not saying to not be thankful. But I'm using a simple sample to simply represent so much of what we are caught up in the moment 
We just do not remember days, weeks, months, years to come. But for God to remember you and for you to know that because of your faith in Christ, it's okay. You can say what Paul says in Philippians 2, who's in prison for being a Christian. He says, hey, if I die, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One of the greatest gifts older saints in this church have for the younger saints in this church, which is why I'm so thankful we have so many generations here, is to just sit with the younger ones and say, let me just give you a window into your future of what really matters. Fifth and final. Prayer for the Son to be glorified in you will always be answered. Prayer for the Son to be glorified in you will always be answered. He's got this interesting statement here, verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, what I'm about to tell you might blow some of your minds. This is not the verse that's teaching that you should end your prayers at the end of your prayers with the words, in Jesus' name though this is the verse that people use to support that way of praying. I want to be very clear. You can say that in your prayers. That's okay. But it isn't trying to introduce some type of magical prayer formula. If you get the words right, Jesus is like, oh, man, now I'm obligated. If you hadn't cited me, I wasn't not necessarily bound to what you're asking. But now that you're like, in my name, okay, I'm going to do something now. You said it, now I'm in on it. That's not what's going on here. What, what the phrase is, whenever you came in somebody else's name, you came on behalf of their authority. You know this in co-working relationships. You have the employer, the boss, the manager, tells some other employee, hey, go tell some other employee to do the following. That employee shows up to the other shared employees like, hey, you should fill in the blank. Like, what gives you the right? I don't have the right. Boss said to. She said to. He said to do that. It's not my authority. It's their authority. I'm just simply the messenger. Jesus is talking about the ability to make requests of God can be confidently made with the understanding that those requests are ultimately because of your relationship to Christ and your desire to see Christ honored, Christ glorified. This is not simply to say, from now on, everything must for to be for Jesus. In fact, one chapter later, he would say in John 15, verse 16, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, but what you can see here in the text is that praying directly to Jesus is appropriate. That's what it says there. If you ask me, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Also in John 15, verse 16, like I just said, if you ask of the Father, he's not trying to say, hey, pick one member of the Trinity. He's saying, listen, this is not a magic potion. This is a prayer based on the authority of Christ with his access, his relationship to God the Father, him being your great high priest, that you want his will to be done in your life. That's why we write in pencil knowing that God has the eraser to maybe rewrite what actually should be written there. So we see this here. Faith in Christ is the anchor that holds us in an uncertain future. It's said that Nero sought to put him to death, which when the other Christians learned this, they pleaded with him to leave the city. 
Though given an opportunity to do so, he did not. Eventually caught and tried for crimes against the state of Rome, he was sentenced to crucifixion. He requested to be crucified upside down because he believed he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was. This is how Peter was arrested, tried, and killed. The man who one day declared he would never deny, denied multiple times, but in the end said, Lord, I'm ready to go. You're timing your way for your glory. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.